Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt and I are here in the studio. Matt, it's Monday, and yo, curious, what's going on? We're getting super close to October. Just getting stressed out. My team needs to figure out how to beat horrible baseball teams. Uh, still happening, huh? Yeah. Thankfully, nobody wants to win the AL West, though, so the Rangers and the Mariners got swept <laughs> this weekend. Well, the Astros managed to win one game against the 100-loss Royals, um, so... <laughs> feel good going on the stretch. Right on. No, that's good. Well, uh, on the sports side of things, I finally have something to cheer for going to UC Denver. The Buffs, Boulder now is doing awesome. I've jumped on the wagon, but I was already on the wagon, just never really started cheering for them until now. So if anyone out there has been following University of Colorado, obviously the Buffs are crushing it. They seem to be drawing a huge crowd of celebrities, Rap artists, former football players. It's a big show. Neon Dion, man. Yeah. He is the show. (laughs) He is. It's been fun to watch. And so anyone out there, if you're a Buffs fan, go Buffs. Yeah, we're facing Oregon this week. And I feel like they're 3-0. They should have won like 45-0 against Colorado State, which they didn't. They're probably going to get punched in the mouth here soon, but it's been a good ride. One of their biggest DBs, Hunter, Travis Hunter, I think his name is. Anyway, he's out this week. So clearly I've been watching that. I'm trying to pay a little more attention to the school that that I went to there, and it's been fun. And so just had to bring that up. Are you a college football fan? I know you must be a Texas fan. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot easier to watch Texas football this year. So... I don't follow it as closely as I used to. I think that sort of like fell out when I was overseas and you just couldn't even get the games, just check the (laughs) scores. Yeah. But I mean, this is an exciting year on that front. It's just hard. Like all my Twitter follows for sports throw me off so much because like, I'm going to say it. Look, I went to UT, so like calibrated, but like A&M fans, like you get too excited. This is (laughs) every year, like it's Heisman watch, national champion watch, because you saw spring practice and like (laughs) it can only get worse from there. If you could really enjoy some of the great successes your school has a little bit more without these expectations that it's going to lead to like a dynasty in college football. Yeah. Like you could have a much better time, (laughs) but that seems to be the way. And then like most of the Texas Twitter people are like pretty cynical You know, we beat Alabama. Everybody's like, oh, this is so great. Like, that was a big upset. And then it's like, wait, maybe they're not that good. Mm -mm. And then against Wyoming, it was like, why did it take us three quarters to figure out how to score touchdowns on these guys at home? So, anyways, it's just interesting to see the different fan bases. Yeah. The Alabama fan base having it probably the worst. (laughs) They got very used to winning for a long time. So No kidding. Well, I don't even know what their rank. They came in at 10, I think, and now they must be below that. I thought they were in the top five, and then they lost to Texas. Texas, like, got ranked third or something. I got to look. Yeah. Yeah. It's good times, though. Again, I used to follow it for a long time, then I had kids, and I lost kind of track, and then this kind of got me re-excited again. So for those, if you work with AES and you know Chance Gailey, him and I had, uh, you know, we were chirping at each other for a long time leading up to the Nebraska game, Ooh. Colorado run. And actually, I went around to the office here in Houston, and I went to, like, everyone I could basically talk to and said, can you please do me a favor? So yeah, no problem. What do you need? 
Can you send an email to Chance and tell him how excited you are about how Colorado's going to beat Nebraska? And so for like two days straight, Chance got probably like 20 or 30 emails from people who didn't even know who Chance was, some of them. <laughs> That's even better. Good. That's yeah. the, like just the intern, the receptionist, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Everybody. So anyway, it kind of got me going and paying attention. But yeah, I had to bring it up because it's been fun. And I know, you, you know, again, going to Texas, you guys are doing good. So for all the college football fans out there, I'm sure you can appreciate the banter. Moving on to drilling fluids. I think it'd be cool to talk about, I mean, we've talked about solids control and centrifuges and, and again, we deal with it day in and day out. And unless you've worked, and again, this is just through my experience, the only time I was able to actually use a desander and a desilter was on a jackup. But every land rig I've been on, they're there, but they're collecting dirt, dust. You can hang things on them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're typically not being used. And so I think it'd be interesting to talk about desanders and desilters, you know, what they are, what the benefits are, and then like, why are they broken? But, and then why doesn't really anyone care that they are broken? Yeah. I mean, I think we've maybe danced around this in the past and I just thought it was funny, like, cause it's just, they're always there. They never work. Most of the time, nobody knows if when they have ever worked, but they move around with the rig. And so it just started this head scratcher. And so I was like, okay, well, let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, full disclosure, I haven't been like walking the pits in quite a while. So when I say that, maybe nowadays they are off the rig. But when I was on the rig, every rig I was on on land had them, but didn't have them. So maybe, I mean, again, maybe I'm speaking out of term here, but is that still normal? So I ask our mud school, like our customer mud schools, I ask them when we do solids control, like, okay. And they all look at each other and they're like, we have them. We've never used them. And I don't know if they work. Okay. That's cool. a very consistent okay. response. So it's still, cause the last time I was a mud engineer was in like 2011 and they were on, but again, I guess some things haven't changed. So that's good to know. So we're actually, you know, we're talking about things that are relevant. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Relevant. In a, that they exist, not relevant in that they are used. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Well, let's start off with the biggest component of these things, the hydroclones. Matt, how would you explain what a hydrocone is? It's a big plastic cone with a couple of holes in it. When we talk about theory of separation of things, to separate something heavy, we can use gravitational force. Right. So I've got this conical shaped thing and I shoot fluid in the side. So it's going to go around the sides and spin, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's spinning around. The heavy stuff is going to stick to the furthest out against the walls and start dropping downwards. And thankfully, there's actually a hole at the bottom where that heaviest stuff can fall out. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I've got a hole in the top. And so the lightest stuff under all this pressure is going to be pushed upwards and out. So your clear fluid's going up. Your solids are going down. Fluid's coming into the side. And basically, the idea is that depending on the cone size, it's going to determine how many g-forces you're going to get or your effective cut point so a desander usually it's like 10 or 12 inches sometimes i see like the line is at six inches like six inches greater desander six inches or less is a desilter a 12 inch desander probably cuts at like i don't know 80 microns ish but you'd go through that one first because it's the bigger one and normally there's two of them right next to each other and then you go to something with a finer cut which would be the desilter I don't even know if I've ever seen a six inch. That sounds big, but like most of them I've seen are little four inch cones and there's a bunch more of them. There might be, you know, what, a dozen, two dozen. I don't even think I've ever counted yeah. a couple of rows of them. It doesn't matter because they're not working, but exact same idea, but you get a higher G force because you got that smaller diameter and they're working in a similar fashion, but they work off the same principle. It's just the size of the cone. And usually when you do any sort of solids control training, you're going to talk about hydrocyclones 
desander, desilter, and then the mud cleaner, where a mud cleaner would be a bunch of desilting cones above a shaker with the idea that you could sort of pre-clean out a lot of the gumbo crap and stuff before it goes over the shaker. Right. So again, we talk about them. It's kind of comically like they're there, but they're not there. And it's like the question for perhaps people out there that aren't familiar with is like, well, why are they broken? Like, obviously the things cost money and they're there for a reason. Like, why are they broken? And I mean, I don't even necessarily know if it's they're broken, but they're just, they don't get serviced. And so they're typically just plugged off and no one wants to take time to like take these things apart and clean them because it's a pain in the butt. But Matt, beyond that, like, yeah, why are these things broken or just not working most of the time? I think, well, there's sort of a catch-22 with this, right? Like nobody really uses them, so nobody knows how to maintain them. So if you start using them, then you're going to fail to maintain them and they're going to be broken. All the, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? This positive feedback loop. A lot of manuals will say like, it's not uncommon to have half the cones packed off at any given time. So it's like, you're not getting anywhere near the throughput. And there's the joke of like having welding rods nearby. I mean, that's not a joke. So people do is yeah, they stick stuff up in the holes to try and get debris loose or whatever when they are packed off. And some of this can just be like, you don't have enough pressure. You don't have the right amount of pressure for that centrifugal force. They just plug up with solids. Usually there's a gauge that doesn't work that's associated with that, which you're, you know, you're supposed to have that lift pressure and that gauge is broken. So don't expect that. If it was working, somebody probably took it for something else. That's more so not necessarily why they're broken, but how they're broken in a number of ways. But I think the why part is why aren't they really fixed is... They require quite a bit of attention. We've gotten very used to not necessarily needing them, which we'll discuss here in a second, but they require a fair amount of attention that other equipment doesn't that can do a similar task. Yeah. And why is this not a big deal? Because with any other piece of equipment on a rig, if something's not working or it's, again, just not being maintained, it gets addressed, maybe not shakers, but for everything else, it gets addressed pretty fast. Again, why is this not being considered or putting more effort towards? I think some of it is you're only going to use this unweighted mud sections, right? Your big chance to put these suckers to work is probably going to be your intermediate right? at best. So you have a fairly short, fast section where these things might help. The expensive production section where you're using oil-based mud maybe or something like that, you're not going to use these. So odds are like nobody's going to be pounding their fist to fix this thing, right? Right. It's usually going to be in like cheap water-based mud or a brine section. I mean, once again, the rig crew doesn't know how or, I mean, honestly, probably doesn't even want to deal with it. And then in other unweighted sections, let's say it's like direct emulsion, centrifuges have so much higher G-force. And guess what? You have somebody out there usually who's like keeping an eye on things. Right. So the solids control hands are going to watch their equipment they're probably not going to worry about rig equipment. So you want to go beg the Derek hand to see if somebody could take an interest in your desander and desilter? Not likely to happen. Right. And, you know, once again, you can adjust the centrifuges. But the other big thing is on the shaker side of things, like shakers have gotten a lot better. I remember when we did our podcast with the Derek guys, we were just kind of talking about shaker screens hold up a lot better than they used to. It is not ridiculous to ask to run 200, 230s. We do it all the time. Yeah. And so, I mean, you can cut to close to 60 microns like that. That's better than what a desander can do. So if I can do that at that point, maybe I get a little more G-force, get a little bit more on desilter, but I got a centrifuge out there, which instead of cutting to 15 to 25 microns can do it to like eight. And so you start to see where it's, this isn't making as much of a material difference as other equipment. Not to say there are certain situations where we have actually seen like 
this help with fluid processing. Like we had somebody fix it and used it and it helped a little bit, but they're fairly few and far between. So if you do have a solids issue and it's an unweighted mud, it's everything that a desander and desilter might be able to tackle. I don't know, maybe give it a run. It might give you extra throughput relative to just using the centrifuge, yeah. right? It may pre-polish so you can be a little more aggressive. They're not great, compelling reasons, but they are reasons if you're struggling with solids under specific operational environments yeah. where it wouldn't kill you. I just wouldn't kill myself <laughs> trying to get it all working. Yeah, no, and I think just to supplement that is it's like the technology around that equipment has evolved so much that it's just not necessary anymore. Whereas like yeah. back in the day you had two shakers, maybe again, there was too much volume and stuff coming over that you needed some other form of solids control. But well, now we have four shakers and we've got these centrifuges. And again, the technology around it has just evolved to a point where it's kind of become obsolete, but it's just comical to get on a rig and see that they're still on there just collecting whatever debris. Well, I thought about this too. Like think if you're quoting out a new build rig and you go through the list it's 12 inches of plastic. If you're getting the whole package, like with a new build rig, are you really gonna like skimp on this when, like, do you want to be the person who finally decided we're not going to do this anymore? No. Because if somebody's going to point out you don't have it. It's almost one of those who's going to be the bold first person to say, you know what, we're kind of done with this because they don't get used. Yeah. I think offshore, like you alluded to where they are, where like one, you have more people focusing on the equipment. Two, you have more long, unweighted sections. There's more opportunities to take advantage of it. But on land, I think there's like, I don't want to be the person that left this off. And then like, we didn't get the work because we didn't have the minimum standardized checklist that Operator X has had for 50 years and refuses to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Not you don't take point. stuff off the list. You add to it. You add sensors, you add yeah. new toys, but you don't be like, oh no, get rid of that. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, again, it, as always, if anyone out there is still using these bad boys and yeah, you have any good insight or sort of some experience with it. Yeah. Please reach out to us and share it with us. You can reach us at the Flowline Podcast at aesfluids.com. You can reach us on LinkedIn. Make sure and connect with the AES Drilling Fluids webpage or the page on LinkedIn as well. We've got the YouTube channel. And again, the website has just an absolute ton of information on there on products and systems and just a good sort of resource for drilling fluids and everything that we're doing here at AES. And with that being said, everyone, be safe out there. Enjoy the fall with all the sports and fun and exciting times. Until next time, take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.